I'm going to do this. I'm going to run for the United States Senate. The time is now for fresh ideas and new leadership. I'm running for student council because of you and for you. That is why I stand before you today to announce my candidacy for president. Welcome to the Arena Talks podcast where we interview emerging political leaders from across the country. My name is Robbie Gupta, co-founder of the Arena. And today I interviewed Jesse Colvin, who's a candidate for Maryland's first congressional district. We had this interview right after, this was last week, right after Connor Lamb uh, had a stunning victory in Pennsylvania. And the reason why we uh, pick up the phone and call Jesse is because he's running in a race that's uh, actually a little bit more difficult even than the Lamb race, on paper at least. Uh, Jesse is a a former U.S. Army intelligence officer, and he completed four combat deployments in Afghanistan and a year in the DMZ in South Korea. Uh, He also is a product of a bipartisan marriage. His wife is a former police officer and former aide to congressional Republicans. Uh, And he's running an incredible race down there in Maryland and shares uh, a lot of his on-the-ground experience there and also draws some uh, conclusions from the lamb race that can help us think through uh, which congressional races to bet on and prioritize in 2018. So let's jump right in. Jesse Colvin, welcome to the Arena Talks podcast. Robbie, thank you very much for having me. Much appreciated. So Jesse, you are running for Maryland's first congressional district. Before we jump in and talk about you, tell us about this this district. Where is it in Maryland uh, and what's your connection to this district? Oh, sure. Uh, so Maryland's first congressional district, let me talk uh, geography and people and policies. Uh, so geography, uh, this is home to one of America's most awe-inspiring natural resources. Uh, We have the Chesapeake Bay in our district. We have uh, Maryland's Eastern Shore, and then three counties north of Baltimore City. Um, I'm a fourth-generation Marylander, and this is a very large uh, congressional district. It's about three and a half hours from tip to tail. uh, uh, So we bought a used truck for this campaign. We're doing about 500 miles a week. Uh, and my dog is usually with me, so she's doing about 400 miles a week because it's just big. Um, in terms of the people, it, it is some of the best American stories and some of the most American ways of life uh, you could ever meet. Um, because we have the Chesapeake Bay, there are folks who have been making a living or have a way of life connected to the Chesapeake Bay that go back three, four, five, six generations. Um, and we also have folks whose grandfather, they're the granddaughters and grandsons of um, people who used to live in the steel industry in Baltimore City uh, when that uh, was thriving. And then in terms of policies, it's a little bit of an irony here. Uh, We're about 90 miles from Washington, D.C., and about 9 million miles in many ways uh, from getting support from Washington, D.C. Our whole platform is based off a very simple premise, which is this is a phenomenal place to raise a family. Uh, we just need to give our kids and grandkids a good reason and reasons to continue these ways of life and then address the challenges. That's really economic opportunity, jobs, and then address the challenges in the short term. And, you know, your family has been there in Maryland since uh, the end of the 19th century. Uh, and so you've, you've seen the ups and downs. And, but you haven't been, um, you've been, uh, out there, uh, you've been outside of Maryland, uh, for a big chunk of the past decade serving your country. Uh, I think you were a senior in high school during nine 11. 
walk us through that journey from experiencing 9-11 as a kid, basically, to signing up and joining the military. Yeah, uh, I, I am way off the beat path here. My parents are these wonderful hippies. Uh, they met at uh, law school in the University of Maryland, had a VW van together, um, and they became these wonderful public servants. My dad's been in the public defender's office for 33 years, and my mom is a judge in Baltimore City. Um, I think they had a law school picked out for me when I was born. And then, yeah, 9-11, I was a senior in high school. I had the military recruiters uh, on the phone that week. It was a big heart attack for my parents. Um, they said, go pursue an education so that's what I did, and I was just intensely curious, and I was determined to understand who these Al-Qaeda guys were, the roots of the 9-11 attacks. Uh, the, I couldn't have articulated it at 17, but I, I had a sense that my generation's challenge lay in the Middle East, so that's what I did. I studied Arabic in college, uh, in Middle East history. I went to Egypt for a semester in college, and then I graduated, and I went to Damascus, Syria, and I was teaching English to Iraqi refugees. And this is 2006. And you can imagine my students' opinion of the Bush administration. I mean, they hated our federal government. Uh, and they had, in their minds, and justifiably every reason to. Um, they had lost to the violence in Iraq homes and family members, and some of them nearly their own lives. Um, but as much as they hated the folks in the White House, some, some of my students had served as interpreters and translators for diplomats and troops on the ground in Iraq. And they held the men and women on the ground in very high regards. And that had a huge impact on me. Um, and as you know, I could see that the war had been started for spurious justifications, but I could also see if we got it wrong in Iraq, it was gonna bleed over into Syria and the rest of the region. I mean, this is five years before the Syrian civil war. So I, I came home and decided that Uncle Sam needed uh, good men and women and I had a college degree and wonderful upbringing and every opportunity. And I spoke Arabic and who was I not to serve? So I, uh, I joined the military. And so you didn't just join the military. You served six years uh, as a U.S. Army and intelligence officer. You served in Afghanistan and the DMZ, from what I understand. You even completed the Ranger course. Um, and I was reading it. You did, is it four deployments in Afghanistan? I did. I did. Uh, I served four combat deployments in Afghanistan. The army is still the army. So I, I came in, you know, speaking Arabic. I just lived in Syria. So, of course, the first place they sent me was South Korea. Um, <laughs> God forbid we match people up with their skills. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I was 25. Uh, I had just graduated from um, Ranger School, which is the depending on who you ask, the premier leadership school in the military. I'm a little biased. Um, but yeah, I found myself as the only intelligence officer for a, a, one of the combat units right near the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea. And we were essentially the tripwire. Uh, and I spent a lot of time now on the campaign trail talking about how a war of choice on the Korean Peninsula would just be an unmitigated disaster. But yeah, I, I had a chance to try out for the army rangers there's two the army has done um we could do a better job with with uh branding in the army so there's two things in the army with the word ranger in the label the first is ranger school that's the school i just mentioned and the second is a unit uh it's the 75th ranger regiment it's in the special operations community so my four deployments to afghanistan were with the unit the special operations unit in afghanistan 
And uh, you were assigned to, to the Joint Special Operations Task Force. Um, what kind of missions were you on? If you've seen the movie Zero Dark Thirty, that's usually the easiest way to explain it. Um, it's that instead of going after Osama bin Laden in Pakistan, it's uh, inside Afghanistan and senior leaders in the Taliban or Al-Qaeda. Uh, Rangers in Afghanistan were doing night raids. Uh, our mission was night raids and airstrikes. Um, and that is all done on the back of intelligence work. And the intelligence needs to be collected and analyzed and vetted. Um, if we're talking about an airstrike, that is a target packet that has to make sure the intelligence is done right. Um, and that the uh, analysis and the collection has been vetted. Um, and as a captain, I was leading a team of 20, 25 folks, and we were spread across different locations. Uh, I, I think I'll, I had more responsibility at 27 than I, I might ever have again. Um, and when we, when we made mistakes, we were on the cover of the New York Times. Uh, when we did, we had successes, nobody ever heard about it. Um, but it was a it was a phenomenal experience, and I'm very lucky. I mean, there's just really no substitute. I think you can learn leadership on a sports field or a boardroom or a Peace Corps deployment, um, but I'm not sure there's a, a better leadership laboratory than being a 27-year-old in a war zone like Afghanistan or Iraq, um, having, having to make it happen. And uh, you know, we, we were a results-based organization, and our bosses made it very clear, you get the job done or you get fired. Uh, that had a huge impact on, on me personally and professionally. And so you come back to the United States post-military, you get involved in the private sector, uh, but you also uh, got married. And uh, your story, uh, you and your wife are not a conventional political couple. Tell us about that. <laughs> um, well, first off, I married up. I want anybody to know that, to hear that. Um, <laughs> yeah, we, we, I was set up... Uh, on a blind date, uh, I'm a very proud Democrat. My wife is a Republican. Um, she is uh, my better half in, in many ways. She was a police officer in, in Washington, D.C. Um, and yeah, we, uh, I don't think a lot of blind dates between Democrats and Republicans uh, get to date number two. Um, but yeah, we, uh, we got married in 2017. Uh, we're having our first baby uh, in less than a month here. Um, and my wife uh, used to work on Capitol Hill and then walked off very definitively. And so now she runs a nonprofit to prevent military veteran suicide. Um, people, we started dating. Everybody asked, you know, how does, how does it, what's it like? You know, Republicans and Democrats, cats and dogs. And it was never an issue for us. So we always tell people, you know, we share very similar values. We just have different ways um, how to get there. Uh, and you know, one, because of my military experience and her experiences, you know, we, we, at the end of the day, believe that everybody is going through something. And if, if you're not going through something, you, you know, somebody who's going through something. Um, and that's, so it's just a good reminder that we, we have far more in common as Americans, um, or members of a community than we, than we have, uh, not in common. And you said she definitively walked away. Uh, I imagine there's more to that. She, uh, she, yeah, so she was, she was, uh, working, um, for a human trafficking task force, uh, for the Washington DC police. And that led her to get really interested in working on human trafficking. And that's how she ended up working on Capitol Hill. 
Um, she had a chance to, it was going to be a promotion and she was going to fill a job um, that is uh, filled by only 3% of it of those jobs are filled by women. And you know, she was really excited to break a glass ceiling. And then she just would, she got in um, and would come home and talk about, you know, that there's, these guys don't budge, they don't compromise. Um, and then I, I said definitively, I mean, her, for her, she, if you remember the, um, the shooting in Orlando at the, at the Pulse nightclub, um, she walked in with just, a little bit of glimmer of optimism. She thought finally maybe there'll be an appetite to, to get something done. And she just heard, you know, gun violence isn't an issue Americans care about. And it just became sort of a demonization of, of the other, um, whether it was uh, immigration issues or uh, Democrats in general or Benghazi, you name it. Um, so she walked off and uh, so now she runs this nonprofit to prevent uh, military veteran suicides, it's, it's especially trans service dogs and veterans. Um, so she's, uh, I was really proud of her. Well, and you know, I, I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm the product of a, uh, a bipartisan marriage. My father is a Republican and my mom is a Democrat. Uh, and so, and, and interestingly, my brother became a Republican and I became a Democrat. Uh, so mm. it's, it's, it's interesting. You know, I'd like to think that, you know, you're going to create conditions where your children will make a choice. Uh, they actually, um, they actually will be presented with both sides of the uh, debate. Uh, I could speak from personal experience that that was a rewarding experience. Yeah. I, I would also imagine Thanksgiving is really interesting for your family. Yeah. You know, my parents split back in the day, but the, so there hasn't been like a full Thanksgiving like that, but my brother and I, I mean, I, during the Iraq war, my brother went off to fight in Afghanistan too. But before he did that, you know, during the, the height of the Iraq war and the 9-11 period, um, the, the, the early Bush years, especially, I would actually study before I went home for Thanksgiving and other holidays so that I can win arguments. Uh, I would actually create like little debate briefs for myself on the way back. Um, that's how intense we were about those debates. Um, and so I, I found it was one of the most important experiences in my life. And, you know, we're roughly in the same generation and I would say it's, it's so rewarding to see folks who are in the middle of that now turning around and, you know, becoming the folks in power. Uh, it's one of the reasons why we're excited about your candidacy. Uh, so let's actually talk more about your district though. Your district is perhaps even more challenging in some ways on paper than the, the Connor Lamb district. So uh, Andy Harris, the incumbent, uh, garnered 67% of the vote, uh, from what I understand, in 2016 and 70% in 2014. Trump was plus 28.4, uh, I think, in this district last time. Tell us uh, your path to victory, and did you learn anything on Tuesday in watching Connor Lamb and, and what happened in that district? Yeah, so this 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 race is winnable. Uh, the time is now, uh, and I'm the guy to do it. I mean, we watched. Uh, man, we got a lot of emails um, after the New Jersey elections in Virginia. Doug Jones in Alabama. Um, I can't tell you how many emails and phone calls we got after Connor Lamb's victory. The, I mean, just the similarities between candidates, he and me, or me and him, uh, and the the makeup of the districts. What what we learned. Um, is that uh, candidate and district need to be a good fit. 
Um, you know, he campaigned on issues that mattered most to the people in his district, uh, and he proposed very practical solutions to those issues. Um, and I, our pathway to victory is very similar. Um, you know, I, when I first uh, called up the the national party, I said, "Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm running in Maryland's first. Um, there was, uh, they, I think, you know, this district had just, we'd just been forgotten about. Um, you know, Maryland experienced this redistricting, a gerrymander in 2011, and this district was considered unwinnable. Um, and I, you know, I was at the headquarters, they fly in all these candidates, and um, it's kind of like a cocktail party on steroids. And they said, all right, you got 10 seconds, what's the elevator pitch? I said, I'm a fourth generation Marylander. I'm an army ranger. Uh, my wife is a Republican. I'm running against Andy Harris. Uh, and I said, all right, there's a lot happening in that sentence. Um, come meet. And then it was a very uh, respectful but blunt message. It was, uh, we're not meeting with a candidate and a district is read by a long shot, but we understand um, that 2018 is going to look different and you have a great story, but you got to go show us that you're serious. Um, so that's what we, our first, so we, we launched last October and, um, we didn't do a poll at the beginning because we didn't need to pay money to find out that nobody had heard of me yet. And that the incumbent <laughs> wasn't, uh, wasn't very well, well liked. Um, so we just been working our tails off. Uh, we, you know, I'm doing 500 miles in the truck because we said yes to every meeting. Um, and we're. We're working really hard. We actually outraised the incumbent last quarter in our first quarter, um, which is a really big deal. You know, he's never been outraised in a quarter or a year or, or any period of time uh, in his four terms. Um, and part of it is uh, telling the Democrats in, in our district that um, this is winnable. Um, you, 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 look, you mentioned the 2016 election, Robbie. Uh, that the candidate in that race uh, spent $600 in advertising uh, on Maryland's Eastern Shore. It just wasn't a serious campaign. Wow. Um, part of it is just uh, telling folks in the district, guys, this is real and we got, we got to get ready. Um, and so we're, our pathway to victory is very similar to Connor's Lambs. Um, our whole platform is about local issues uh, and it's about character. So in the character piece, it's, it's asking folks to understand um, that this job is ultimately about leadership and results and character counts and civility counts. Um, and then our, the, the, our platform is designed um, to address, like I said earlier, this is a great place to raise kids and grandkids, but we have to give them reasons to stay and address the issues that are gonna keep them here. Um, so you know, the three pillars of our platform are the Chesapeake Bay, and I wanna get to achieve, I wanna plant 10 billion oysters in the Chesapeake Bay by 2030. The, the environmental impacts of that will be unbelievable and the economic impacts will be unbelievable. Um, I talk a lot about jobs of the future. Uh, we, re we could have some of the best solar programs and cybersecurity programs at the two and four year colleges and universities in our district. And I talk about taking care of each other. I mean, opioids in this district, it's bad. Uh, it is, the fatalities are 50% higher than the national average. Um, I used to go in the labor rooms and ask, um, can you raise your hand if you've been personally affected by the epidemic or if you know somebody? And I've just long since stopped asking because the answer is it's everybody. Uh, and then healthcare. 
Um, I'm running against somebody who wants to sweep away the ACA, the Affordable Care Act. There are 54,000 people in our district, left, right, and center, who depend on it. Uh, and I think healthcare is a right, but just to, to sweep it away without backup plan. Uh, there's also 50,000 jobs in this district in the healthcare industry. So if you take away the ACA, you're, you're hurting people, their ability to take care of themselves and in and, and their, and their wallets. Um, Say so we beat we beat Andy Harris because we're working really hard and telling Democrats that this is a serious campaign and they're just looking for a serious candidate to get excited about. Fifteen to twenty percent of this constituency are independents, um, and they are just looking for the best man or woman in the race, and that comes down to leadership and a message. The incumbent, uh, I am running against a incumbent named Andy Harris. He is in the Tea Party, the House Freedom Caucus, uh, and he's actually at the extreme right edge of the Tea Party. Um, and we were able to outraise him in our first quarter of the campaign, last quarter, um, which landed us on the National Party's majority maker list of the districts it considers in play for 2018. And part of that is based off the incumbent's record. Um, so the, the three things at the top of the list, um, he had Roy Moore from Alabama come to a fundraiser under the cover of night in Maryland. Um, he, uh, as a member of the Cole Caucus, uh, he voted against um, relief funding. Uh, Superstorm Sandy hammered a town in our congressional district, and he voted against funding for the relief effort. Um, and then the last thing, uh, this winter, he attempted to travel with four other members of the Tea Party to Prague, the Czech Republic, uh, to meet with a political party um, who has publicly called for the extermination of gays and Jews and Roma. Um, so when we talk about making this campaign about uh, leadership and results and character, uh, character counts and civility counts um, and who you surround yourself with. So that's, that's a, just a good brief introduction to the, to the incumbent. One of the things that you said that's really interesting to me in light of Connor Lamb is you said, you talked about healthcare being a right. And when I looked at your website, you talked about protecting and strengthening Medicaid, Medicare and CHIP. That seems counterintuitive to a lot of the conclusions that people drew about Lamb. And I just want to hear a little bit more about, you know, you're running in a, in a pretty Republican district, yet you're running on a platform to protect and extend uh, health care. And you talk about it as a right. Uh, what what's that all about? Like, is, you know, what, what did you learn from land? And why do you think that a district that's as Republican as it is, is going to is going to believe in that message that message resonate with them. That's a great question. I, you know, so my Arabic is pretty rusty, uh, but I speak pretty good Republican because I speak it at home with my wife. Um, <laughs> some of the stuff is just comes down. I think the language, um, Connor lamb met people where they were, uh, and he met people where they were and the issues that matter to them. Um, so for a lot of people, the ACA gets talked about, you know, Obama's in the name. So it's about uh, Obamacare, which immediately takes us to this, um, what we see on cable news shows, where we're just screaming at each other, left left to right and right to left. Um, if we're talking about healthcare, it's just saying, uh, whether you, you love the ACA or you hate it, right now where we are is, um, if we repeal it with no backup plan, there are 54,000 people in this district who are gonna lose access to the healthcare. Um, and there are 50,000 jobs that will be uh, that are on the chopping block potentially if we just repeal with no backup plan. 
Um, so it's just talking about it in a way that, that uh, gets beyond the, the hyper-partisan screaming matches and, and gets it back to the kitchen table. Uh, it, the other element here is uh, the incumbent, the medical doctor. Um, and he's very famously, uh, his first week in Congress during orientation, he asked, um, he made national headlines because he asked, when does my congressional health care plan kick in? And he got an answer was, yeah, the answer was, well, you got to get sworn in first. So you got to wait a couple weeks. Uh, and he complained very publicly uh, in a room full of freshman congressmen. That made national news. So it's, um, it's when I talk about character and civility and, and being there, um, breaking it down for, for how it affects the kitchen table. I mean, that, that's, that's how you do it. And, you know, you mentioned the uh, opioid epidemic and having a 50% higher fatality rate in your district. You know, I come from Staten Island, New York which has um, similar uh, trends and is a, a hotbed of, uh, of tragedy right now due to the epidemic. Often when I hear people talk about this issue, I hear, uh, I hear folks talk about investing more money, starting more programs. Um, what are some of the hard choices beyond investing more money? What are some of the hard choices that we as a society need to make in order to get ahead of this issue? Yeah. So part of, there's a couple, that's a great question. So uh, part of it is um, we need to have some very difficult, but incredibly necessary conversations um, around the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, those lawsuits are happening and they're going to play out. Um, we need to have some very difficult, but incredibly necessary conversations with the medical community. Um, pain being the fifth pillar of, of a conversation between doctor and patient Uh that's going to be a tough conversation. There are a lot of incentives uh, working against us having it, but we need to. And then some of the, if we're talking about resources, um, you know, if you want to pay lip service to this thing, you, you only focus on prevention and it's only law enforcement inside of prevention. Uh, and you put together some sort of task force and it'll be law enforcement. There'll be a couple of arrests and I get in the six o'clock news. You're not really going to make an impact. Um, so some of the difficult conversations need to be around, how are we really going to deal with prevention and then treatment and recovery? You know, some neighborhoods don't want treatment or recovery centers in their neighborhoods. Um, but these are our, everybody at this point knows somebody who's been affected by this. Um, and there's going to be some difficult, you know, in my, in our district, for example, there's a, a YMCA in um, a town called Easton, Maryland. And it's from two 30 to six 30. Uh, you have hundreds of kids in there and they're rock climbing or they have a little kitchen, they have basketball, you can do your homework. It's getting those kids at the vulnerable time and at the vulnerable part of the day, um, keeping them away from these temptations. And that's great. Uh, that's, that's not very sexy. Law enforcement task forces get headlines. Um, we need to have some conversations about why, why we can't have more YMCAs opening uh, up to these kids like that. So that's, that's how you do it. And the last thing is, um, I think we need to have some, some really direct, honest, difficult conversations about what treatment really means. Um, if you talk to people personally impacted, they're going to tell you 30 days isn't enough. Uh, it might need to be three months or six months or nine months. And that's going to that's gonna cost resources. But if we want to get out of this thing, you can't give it lip service and you have to tackle these things. And part of that just comes down to congressmen and congresswomen who have the political courage to stand up and say, this is, this is a huge issue. It is, it is absolutely hammering people in my district and I'm not, I'm not going to stand for it. So let's figure it out because we have no other choice. So on that, um, 
we have a few questions we ask people uh, on the regular, so I'm just going to breeze through them pretty fast. The first is, and I think you've already talked about some of these issues, but what's an issue you believe in, uh, a policy you believe in that is probably unpopular in your district, but that you believe anyway, and that you're going to hold true to and be honest with your voters about? So I, I mentioned earlier, one of the, the planks of our platform is the Chesapeake Bay. And uh, I want to get to planting 10 billion oysters by 2030 because the environmental impacts and the economic impacts. Um, oysters are cult- grown and cultivated and brought to market uh, traditionally through watermen. Um, and if you're familiar with a lobsterman up in Maine, it's a, it's, it's a rough analogy. It's not perfect. Um, and there's also these new things. It's an aquaculture oyster farm. Uh, and the aquaculture industry is ready to uh, boom and scale up. Um, and it, uh, it, it is a challenge to tell folks from the watermen community who have been here for generations and generations um, that the economy we're trying to build and the environmental protections we're trying to in place are going to keep you, there's a place for you in this economy we're trying to build. And we're going to have, uh, I've already started to have some very tough conversations um, cause that's not a popular thing to say. Um, it's not a popular thing to say because, uh, their, their, their fear is that they're going to be left out of an economy that they help build and left out of an industry that they help build. The other thing I, I, I start and end a lot of sentences, um, talking about, I, I just, I'm not going to pander or lie to you. Um, a lot of folks, you know, Dems right now are very angry. Um, and they really want to know. Uh, they, they want everything to, to get changed overnight. Um, so that we have folks in our district who, like in many districts, uh, want to know why single payer healthcare can't happen overnight. And I, and I have to, I, I just, I'm not going to pander and I'm not going to tell them just what they want to hear. So I say, uh, you know, regardless of, you know, if the house flips, maybe the Senate flips, but the occupants of the white house are still going to be the occupants of the white house. Um, and what you're hoping to achieve is just not going to happen until at least 2020. Um, and that's not a popular thing to say in a room. Uh, and I have every incentive to say something different because of the Democratic primary. Um, but I, I, I think if, you know, if, I, if I'm not authentic and I'm not, uh, I'm not being genuine, um, I, I, don't, I don't think you're doing this job right. So it's, uh, you know, and I think people's BS meters at this point are so well-tuned, left, right, and center, um, that they'd rather you, you look them in the eye and say, we disagree, but here's how I got here. Then just sit there and try to tell them what you think they want to hear. Well, with that, Jesse, we wanted to thank you for joining us. And why don't you end by telling us how folks who are listening can get involved in your campaign? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I'll give you a couple of different ways. Um, the first, uh, if you want to get involved in our campaign, the easiest thing to do is uh, go to our website. It's my name. Uh, we can probably put it on the podcast, but it's uh, jessecolvin.com, J-E-S-S-E. C-O-L-V is in Victor, I-N is in November.com. Uh, our social media handle is Colvin, C-O-L-V-I-N, the number four, Congress. Um, we just, my dog just launched her infrastructure tour on Instagram. You should check it out. Uh, but if you really want to get involved, we are, um, we need all the help you can get, uh, which means uh, contributions um, and spreading the word. Uh, we are, this is one of the biggest congressional districts east of Mississippi, and we're working our tails off. I just can't shake everybody's hand. 
Um, so we need to raise the resources to communicate with paid advertisements, which means fundraising. So we need all the help you can get. So if you can give, please give. Every little bit counts. Uh, and if you can't give or you can give, either or, uh, please spread the word. Well, Jesse, thank you for joining us. All right, thank you very much. 